Welcome back to Out of the Main, a Yacht Rock podcast. Put a pin in that or put an asterisk next to it. But uh, I can't decide, John, if this is my biggest dream or worst nightmare because the worst nightmare part is I'm a bass player sandwiched between two technically proficient drummers. Yeah, drummer day. It's like uh, Doobie Brothers, dual drummers. And I'm clearly out of my league um, as the bass player, so I won't even try to uh, play along. But... That won't stop me from talking to our guest today, so I think I can pull that off. Okay. So we are really honored, excited to welcome in Tris and Bowden. Tris, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. It's great to be here with you guys. Yep, calling in from sunny San Diego, soon to be relocated to uh, the beaches of Florida. Is that right? Well, yeah. Uh, yeah, about six months from now, if all goes according to plan, uh, we hope to keep a place here as well because we have family here and all. But, uh, but yeah, we're going to be Floridians. I cool. Think. Mm. Well, before we dive into your career, um, I was explaining to you before we kind of went on air that I think our range of listeners ranges from the hardcore Yacht Rock zealots who knew every piece of personnel on any piece of Yacht Rock ever recorded. And then at the other end of the spectrum, some people who are just learning what Yacht Rock even is. They just know that they love just music even related to yacht rock you know light rock from the late 70s early 80s they don't know any of the players so tell us how would you explain to that audience who tris imboden is relative to yacht rock well um as a result of my involvement i think with at the time we were doing music that has now been deemed yacht rock we had no idea there would be such a thing (laughs) yeah but uh i was uh uh, with my association with Kenny Loggins, my long association with him, and my good fortune of playing on all those hit records, his biggest records, and and particularly those collaborations with Michael McDonald and he with such songs as This Is It and Heart to Heart and, you know, those ones. Uh, apparently, they are considered essential yacht rock now. Yep. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And I'm very proud of those records, I have to say. Um, as a result of those records, I also was starting to be, get called to to perform with other acts on their their recordings too. So uh, I recorded with Gary Wright on his last hit, a song called "I Really Want to Know You" uh, in the early '80s, and um, a band called Firefall. Yeah, um, I joined that band actually when Kenny went on hiatus to start a family <laughs> year <laughs> off. And, and uh, so George Hawkins, the bass player from uh, the Kenny Loggins band and I were asked to join Firefall. Firefall had been opening for us on tour and their bass player, Mark Andes had left and joined Hart and Mike Clark had left the drummer. I uh, was formerly with the birds and the burrito brothers and that. So anyway, we did a, uh, we had one hit off that album. It was uh, the, the album was called Clouds Across the Sun, and I think there was sort of a minor hit called Staying With It. Staying with it, letting my heart take me there. Got a feeling, ooh, I'm going somewhere. Deep in it. Yeah, I got the vinyl right here. I got your picture in here, too. I can see what you looked like back then. <laughs> Amazing. Wow, you guys have really done your homework. So what year is that? That's like, I know I had hair. Did Tris have hair back then? 
Yeah. <laughs> it had to be about 82 or so, I think. <laughs> cool. Well, we did talk to Mark and Jock uh, about, I think it was December of last year. Yeah. So they were yep. really cool. Oh, yeah. man. Yeah. Well, I, I love Mark. And I love both those guys so much. And, and uh, unfortunately, I don't get to see them that often. Uh, you know, when Chicago would blow through uh, Colorado, you know, Jock had come to a show at Red yeah. Rocks or whatever. But I haven't seen Mark in years. And we ended up recording together later with Jay Ferguson, you know, his old band uh, compatriot from Spirit. And right. did a solo album, a real fun uh, album called White Noise. <laughs> appropriately named. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you mentioned Chicago. So the last bit of context I think that anyone would need is you were a longtime drummer with Chicago since starting in 91. Is that right? Actually, 19, 1990 to 2018. Uh, my last gig with them was, I believe, March of 2018. Yeah. All right, John. So you're the other drummer. Yeah, I want to go all the way back before before all of that and ask you really quickly. Um, I, according to your Wikipedia page, which we know that's where all the truth is. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> obviously, you play multiple instruments. You're credited as vocals on some stuff, harmonica on some stuff. We know you uh, played trumpet. Obviously, drums became the big one. But it also mentioned that you're self-taught in that. Is that true? And if so, what was your process for learning? Who did you emulate? How did you go about self-teaching? Wow, that's a, that's a great question. I uh, am self-taught to a point in that I learned how to read in junior high school band. And uh, I actually uh, started playing trumpet first there because there was no room in the drum section. <laughs> but I was buddies with all the drummers and hung out with them. And yeah. the band director knew I was really a, a, a drummer at heart. So when there was an opening, he let me slide in there. And uh, so, uh, but he was not a drum instructor per se. Right. And, and I never had any formal drum instruction until I sought it out much later uh, in my 20s, actually. You know, and I'm, when, what I was talking about was when I was like 12 or 11 or so in the junior high school, I guess 12 or 13. Right. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I... You know, I emulated everybody I, I I would hear on record. My folks were big band nuts, so I, of course, was way into Gene Krupa and that solo on Sing, Sing, Sing yep. and with Benny Goodman. And uh, Buddy and, and then Joe Morello, they, they, they love jazz as well. So Joe was a big influence and, yeah. and Alvin and all the, all those guys I'd li I was listening to, uh, although I couldn't figure out how the hell to do that. Stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I know. But it was in there anyway. And uh, so I took it upon myself in my twenties to, to start studying at West coast drum shop in Orange County here in California. And, and uh, I was in a band that was actually, you know, making some waves and had a record deal on that and opening for Loggins and Messina, which proved prophetic. 
Yeah, very. Opening from Chicago, too. <laughs> wow. Now, we went on the road with the Beach Boys and that. That was a band called Honk. Uh, but back to your question, um, I, I started honing my reading skills and maybe a little hand technique, although not much. My teacher didn't say, hey, man, your grip sucks or anything like that. So over the years, as a result of my bad technique, I've had carpal tunnel since, like, the Uh-oh. late seventies. And so, Ugh. you know, in fact, it got so bad for a while that, that uh, I'd have to in the middle of a drum solo, look at my hands to me because they were numb, you know, and I, to make sure I was holding on to the sticks. So uh, anyway, I've tried, tried to uh, address that now, you know, throughout my, my career when I started really taking it serious, seriously, uh, yeah. you know, and developing some hand technique. I'm still like Fred Flintstone though, man. I'm <laughs> <laughs> Her animal from the Muppets, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Mongo light drum. Yes. <laughs> well, what's interesting about that, John? I was just going to bring up, and maybe you were going to as well, but uh, I'll steal your thunder. So, Great. John here is a drummer, self-taught, right. and he taught himself by emulating two drummers that I, I'm sure you'll be familiar with. One was Jeff Percaro. Yeah. Oh, my and good Jeff, friend. Yeah, mm-hmm. John. Who was the other one? Well, when I got more mature later on, so it was early on, it was some other guys. It was like, uh, well, uh, the guy from Boston, whoever it was that played that. I know Sib was credited and all that, but um, uh-huh. the, one of the other guys that I really emulated was, of course, Danny Seraphine. Uh-huh. So, so we'll we'll get to that question. You are stealing my thunder a little bit, but um, that, that the Chicago thing is really really interesting to me, but. Um, first you did the Loggins thing and I noticed when I was going back, I thought you played on all the early Loggins stuff. And then I noticed that actually celebrate me home was Steve Gadd and Harvey Mason. Right. So then from there you get the gig for the next several records. How did you get that call? How did that happen? And it seems like, um, both for this case and Chicago, you became a band member as opposed to a, just a session guy for hire because you went on tour with these guys as well. Right. Yeah, I, I did. I did. And actually, how that happened was uh, uh, there, uh, Kenny was looking to put a band together. He had George Hawkins, the, uh, the bass player that played on Celebrate Me Home, but also w- had done the last tour with Loggins and Messina, the Farewell okay. Tour. Uh, the two horn players were there as well, John Clark and Vince Denham, absolute brilliant horn horn players genius both of them and uh as was george and uh anyway i was working with a a british artist that i'd done a couple of uh albums with me named ian matthews and we were getting ready to go on the road opening for little feet and i was all excited about that then i heard about these auditions for this Kenny Loggins uh, tour and that he had a new album out and that the album was incredible. So I thought, eh, what the hell, just go and audition, thinking I had a deer fart in a windstorm because <laughs> <laughs> it was no less than 150 drummers that I, were auditioning, and most of which were my heroes, or some of which, anyway. So, yeah. uh, But anyway, I heard this music, and they had charts as well, and the way the auditions went were they'd play one of the songs for you, uh, you'd read it down, and then they'd play it again for you. And then so for those who didn't read well, you, hopefully you could commit to memory. Right. Well, 
that album was so hip, man. Celebrate me home. And Steve Gadd being one of my all time favorites. Yeah. And Harvey Mason, one of my all time favorites. And both of which had become two of my major influences. Uh, I was in heaven because there it was like, like written out as well. I mean, exactly what Gadd played, you know? Wow. And I've got, I've got the music. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, uh, uh, on, on, uh, Oh, God, what's the name of the song? I Believe in Love. Anyway, it just went so well. And George and I just connected. It was just one of those things, you know, a feel thing, you know, where we just kind of felt everything in the same spot. Did they know you could sing, too? Did that kind of help? Yeah, uh, although I didn't really uh, audition as a vocalist, okay. but but they found out after the fact that I was a singer, and uh, <laughs> that's a funny story. I'll tell you why I'm not singing anymore, uh, or part of the reason. Loggins told me he didn't like the way singing drummers looked, and uh-huh. so I yeah. went, "Really?" And <laughs> he said, "Yeah." So I got like real self conscious about it. And I, <laughs> that's funny. And so, Did you point uh, out Phil Collins? Don uh, Henley? No, at the time, I, I was defenseless. I was, yeah, just, I'm sure. You know, <laughs> I might throw in Mickey Dolan's. Uh, <laughs> so, anyway, uh, so, so I just kind of went, yeah, screw it. I'll just, you know, focus on the drums. And, you know, like anything, it's a muscle, use it or lose it. And yep. uh, so I lost it. But I keep saying, if I can ever cough that fur ball up, I'll start singing again. There you go. Yep. <laughs> Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So it sounded like those early albums were like record the band, you know, um, in the studio, get the whole band, get a whole take, and then maybe overdub some vocals and solos and stuff. But they didn't seem like they were pieced together track by track, you know. And then, late, of course, later on, the log and stuff took on such a production value that, you know, you had songs that were so, like, edited and, and um, produced like, um, you know, like Footloose and the Vox Humana years and things like that. So how did your role and your involvement, you know, talk about that as it pertained to a drummer, changing over from band recording to more layer-by-layer kind of... Kenny is always is and has always been very hands-on and meticulous about every little corner. He... Uh, he really likes to make sure everything's polished and mm-hmm. has been looked at. And as a result, we had the luxury of rehearsing most all those songs on like Night Watch before we went to New York to record them. Uh, and my favorite recording that I did with him actually was the entire Keep the Fire album. I absolutely love that. And uh mm. Uh, this is it was the only song that we really hadn't rehearsed much, ironically. This is it. Make no mistake where you are. This is it. You're back to the corner. This is it. 
That came together in the studio because he and Michael had written it later. But um, I, w I loved the process when it was the whole band and the whole band tracking too, or at least the rhythm section. Uh, you know, George Hawkins was always just so incredibly musical. I mean, he would come up with these, these like lines that, that melodically and harmonically were so hip and complimented the song, but also rhythmically so cool. And section to section, you know, they would, they'd change. Mm -hmm. And he and I would collaborate on that, you know, to try to support the song always first and the vocalist, but could kind of stand up on their own and be interesting. So... Yeah, I saw some arranging credit for you on a couple of those, I think, in the liners. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, uh, I just loved doing that with George. And and later with Nathan East, too, you know, when, when Nate started Ooh, yeah. playing with Kenny. But at that point, when Nathan had joined the band, it had become more of that like you're talking about. Less cutting with the rhythm section live and, and more layering, you know. Um, mm -hmm. we, if we had the benefit of, of rehearsing a song before we went in, then we would do what I was just saying, you know, more of, of that approach, you know, really composing the rhythm, uh, track. You know? And I've always been really interested in the drum track to I'm all right. The theme from Caddyshack, yeah. because it's so different And the first time, you know, I'm 50 years old. So the first time that song comes out, all I can have the capacity to do is just enjoy the song, right? The melody. Uh -huh. And then I start getting into Yacht Rock. What I now discover is Yacht Rock about five, 10 years ago. I have a quasi career as a music musician behind me. Not that good of one, but um, so I at least can now listen for new things. And that was one of the first things in Yacht Rock that I'm like, that drum track is killer. <laughs> yeah, John's <laughs> pantomiming it, but maybe we could play a little of it uh, so people know what I'm talking about. <laughs> My question to you then is on where does that fall? Is that was that your concoction? Was that hey Kenny told you I want this, or was it just something that evolved naturally in the session when you were recording? Well, no, it actually that did. Uh, I believe that was more uh, an evolution uh, during the session that that evolved during the session rather. Um, We'd been on the road opening for Fleetwood Mac, and I I'm sorry I'm jumping all over the place, but. That Celebrate Me Home album, um, we had the privilege of opening for Fleetwood Mac because everybody wanted to mm. during the Rumors tour, right? So so uh, as a result, Kenny really got into and loved, as we all do, that John McPhee, McFleetwood thing, you know, with the big ones and threes on the, you know, on the bass drum. And, you know, Tom's is part of the pattern right. and that, you know, so he was looking for something like that. And, and uh, George and I just kind of, that was sort of our interpretation of, of, uh, of that sort of thing. I, I, I really, you know, I heard that song the other day and I went, God, that's a hip record. Man. <laughs> it, <is. laughs> it sounded, nothing else sounded like it at the time. That's yeah, for sure. And I also love so much that, that acapella vocal breakdown on the bridge, you know, where he kind of goes to beach boys. land. <laughs> Oh, 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 oh,
All right, my other quick question. Sorry, John. Who did the doom, doom, doom? Mm. <laughs> I mean, I got the guy on the line right now. I got to ask the questions yeah. what I can ask him. That's all right. Do it. So who does doom, doom, doom? Well, live, live, I forget who did that. It wasn't me. But live, I did, on the record, it's Eddie Money's. No, can't bother right away. That, that, That's where Eddie yeah. is. Okay. I but, Couldn't but place it. On the live version, it was me. Oh, nice. You got to be Eddie Money, yeah, too. Yeah, well, you know, the thing was, they released the live version as a single. And so, uh, so yeah, I was a, I became a member of Astra. I was a <laughs> singer all of us. Oh, uh, yeah. Suddenly <laughs> the royalties are pouring in, right? Because <laughs> my voice was more gruff and sounded more like Eddie Money than anybody else is in the band. So I covered that part. <laughs> All right. So we're now, now, now Tom, we're asking those kind of get in the weeds sort yeah, of questions. Get us out of it. Um, okay. No, I, oh, I got okay. one of my own. Uh, first of all, I have to mention that um, my, my particular favorite and as the high adventure album, I thought you played some killer stuff on that. We even mentioned that at the beginning of uh, I got to try, Oh, but the beginning of I got to try where you're laying that groove down and then Abel Boreal, I believe it's yes. the bass player on doing those slides. We've, we've used that part in the show. I love that. But I, the question I had to have is, so now you're into the, we're getting into the later years. We're getting into Vox Humana, and suddenly there's these things called drum machines and Simmons drums. And a regular, you know, drummer coming out of the 70s, I would love to know what your thoughts were we're having to play that. And I particularly love the big, huge ah, Simmons yes. fill at the end of Forever. I love that. The beginning, too. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. It leads you in. Yeah. Well, that that was, you know, David Foster and and, uh, and Kenny had written that tune together. And uh, David was always known for his enormous drum sounds, courtesy of Humberto Gatica mm-hmm. and the AMS, right? That little right. gadget that, that, um, that just beefed everything up so much. I, during that period, um, you know, had embraced Simmons and, and uh, was everybody had, you know, and uh, I love the fact that, geez, you know, uh, the, <laughs> that Tom sound, <clears throat> I mean, it's, it's like, you know, the, the Tom that ate, ate New York or something. <laughs> You're announcing yeah. yourself with that. That's yeah. for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Big, big like sky, dumb like us, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and Humberto really knew how to maximize those sounds too, you know. In fact, he took my Simmons brain, my head. He wouldn't let me touch it. He had it on the top of his console, and he, I mean, we took an hour, hour more hour yeah. and a half to dial in to program the it. Yeah. Beefiest sounds possible on the Tom Toms for both forever. And uh, gee, uh, uh, don't no looking back. I think we, no, yeah, you know, yeah, uh, for Footloose, and mm-hmm. but that's a funny story about Footloose. I don't want to jump all over the place here. No, nope. but uh, let's I, hear the Footloose. I've told that this story a million times, but uh, gotta hear it. I, okay, you guys okay. may have not heard this. Footloose, actually, Kenny being the rehearsal nut that he is, and as I. Uh, 
said before, likes to look at every little piece that's going into to a, uh, a recording ahead of time, if possible, and uh, and really take aim. Um, we'd been on the road for a few months knowing that we were going to be recording this song, Footloose. Now, Kenny's renowned for making sound checks into rehearsals. I mean, like hours long and he still does it to this day i can ask because mm. i went back and played with him again after leaving chicago mm-hmm. uh <laughs> he's still doing it <laughs> wow uh, but anyway so we had been going through this song over and over and over and over i mean you know at sound checks for months on the road and uh nathan and e- nathan east and i buzzy feeton and and neil larson steve wood we went into, when we got home off the road, we went into the record plant in L.A., and we cut that song in two takes. The first one was for sound, and the second one was it. I mean, we just we had just lifted our legs our collectively and peed on it because <laughs> wow. we knew it inside and out, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And so, so wow. uh, the irony is, and this is a true story, I was walking out of the studio arm in arm with, with Nathan East. And we were looking at each other going, that's the last time we'll ever have to hear that piece of crap. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Whatever happened to that song? Oh, no, yeah. it isn't. And then it blew up, of course. Playing it for the rest of your life. Exactly. And now, <laughs> I got to admit, I love it. I just got a, a, a nine times platinum, <laughs> you know, uh, record. A purely iconic 80s song. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And it sounds a whole lot better to me on the air than. <laughs> I, I bet. But uh, well, there was yeah, there was a lot of post production done on that track. I'm sure. Well, there it, was. It's See, great. I cut now. In two, more to your point, I cut the basic track with with acoustic drums, and then the the drum breakdown. I went in and just overdubbed it, what I was playing on the acoustic drums, and and mm-hmm. get okay. the original kick kick pattern. You know. But that's me on acoustic and uh, Simmons, you know, so got a pretty juicy, big sound on that record as well. But man, forever. And and, oh, geez, I mean, there was a number of them. And also with other artists, with David Foster, I did the love theme from St. Elmo's Fire, which was a hit. I did a lot of Simmons overdubs uh, for records he was producing. Uh, one, one for, well, a few for actually Neil Diamond. Yeah, headed for the future. That's a that's a favorite of mine. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. 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 And then there's uh, there's uh, another album, the best years of my life. I think. Oh yeah. Uh, yep. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, I was getting a lot of work as a Simmons uh, striker. 
<laughs> yeah, I get it. I, I was going to yeah. ask both of you actually what the mindset of okay. a drummer is around 1985 when you can see this technology coming. I always call it the rise of the machines that happen, yeah. and you're getting paid to sit behind a kit. And like I know John, he embraced all the digital wave, and it I love the drum machine. And it and sounds like you stuff. did too. So how does did most people yeah. do you think in the day, or did they resist it? And how did your role change as a as a recording artist? Well, that's a really good question. You know, originally, um, I resisted um, there at first drum machines because I was a firm believer in in uh, human time. And, and, mm-hmm. and in fact, that's why guys like Jeff Beccaro, Steve Gadd, you know, Harvey Mason, you know, Mike Baird, Carlos Vega, J.R. Robinson, and myself, if I can include myself, were being hired was because of our, our ability to generate uh, time that felt good and feel like right with feel you know and the thing about drum machines that i didn't like was just how stiff and regimented they were yeah although there were guys that were so adept at program programming like pat uh, mastelato and guys like that uh that they could make it feel like it was a real drummer it just blew my mind i was never that guy i didn't embrace it once i was forced to <laughs> yes. to really learn how to do that. But, uh, but man, um, you know, the, the, there was a big reason why we all got the work we did uh, was, was because of our feel. And so that's, that's why I mm-hmm. kind of resisted it. But when it came to sonics and, and sound and that, I mean, I, I loved uh, all the electronics, you know I mean? Like Simmons. And, yeah. And the- those early Simmons though, pads, that's where your carpal tunnel started. I can tell you that. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. like, those were like hitting coffee tables. Those things were so hard. They sure were. And then they tried to dignify them or soften the blow a little bit. With yeah. The oh, right. You did that tennis elbow going. Oh, oh man. Yeah, man. I know. <laughs> that's true. Well... Maybe there is a good spot to take a break. We can rest our carpal tunnel, rest our voices. Uh, We did end up speaking, as we often do with guests, uh, with Tris for about an hour. So we thought we would break this up again into two episodes. We're thinking just... Quickly, John, we, you and I have talked about would people rather sit through an hour plus podcast or have two 30 minutes? And obviously we've thought that it's probably better on people's schedule and attention spans to break it up into two. But if people have strong feelings either way, uh, let us know on Facebook. Send us a note. Um, but unless we hear otherwise, this is what we'll do with the longer episodes to try to keep everything around 35, 45 minutes. Yeah, it's a good uh – time length for like a, a car ride riding to work or from work or you know train ride however people come and go but um i wanted to go back you touched on something there uh when we were talking to tris specifically when we were talking about i'm all right the caddyshack tune and you had to ask him about who did the do 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 who who's the, the this guy right right yeah well Funny thing was the very next day I happened to be listening to uh, – I just bought a nice vinyl uh, reissue of uh, ABBA's Super Trooper. And I know it doesn't seem like it relates. Well, it's it, actually it's a great sounding release. It's, uh, it was remastered at Abbey Road. It uh, They cut it into 
two discs, so two 45 RPM discs. It just sounds amazing. But anyway, so I have this blasting in the living room, and the chorus comes on to Super Trooper. Like the super Trooper lights are gonna find me shining like the sun, smiling heaven sun. And then. I find myself singing along with the low guy, Super Troopa, <laughs> and, you know, strutting around the house, Super Troopa. I wish I could have seen that. Well, and that reminded me of you asking about uh, the, the, the low doop, voice. Doop, doop. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, a bunch of other kind of similar things started rushing into my head. I, I, I started thinking about um, uh, the Beach Boys did a song called Vegetables. I jumped up and down and hoped it tossed me a carrot. We were just watching the McCartney uh, documentary with uh, Rick Rubin on Hulu, and he hit him with um, McCartney's version of Check My Machine. So on Vegetables, you, there you had... Uh, Paul McCartney is actually one of the people chomping on vegetables in the microphone <laughs> to create the rhythm track. And then, of course, you got this bizarre voice that McCartney's doing on Check My Machine. And there's probably a whole bunch of others. And I'm thinking to myself, self, what must it have been like? Here they are standing in front of the microphone doing something that in that very moment had to seem really stupid. Right. Whether it's the doo-doo or super trooper or chewing on a carrot or any of these things. I'm like... It had to seem so dumb at the time, yet they had the, I guess, artistic courage or the I don't care or whatever it is to see it through, regardless of how dumb they felt. And now here we are, 30, 40, even 50 years later, hearing those things and going, man, that part's so cool. Super. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's just the psychology of that just really interests me. Well. Two things. One is put a pin in that because that's going to come up in the lightning round here in just a minute. Um, and then the other thing is I just watched last night Bohemian Rhapsody for the first time. Have you seen it? There you go. Another good example. So yes. they do a whole yep. thing, and I don't know how much of it is fictionalized, but I'm sure it's close to the truth when they're trying to nail the operatic uh, harmonies in Bohemian yep. Rhapsody, the song. <laughs> Just what a stickler uh, Freddie Mercury was for the drummer hitting that high part. Yep, and you could even probably go back to the whole peg thing with Michael McDonald, how dumb he yeah. felt singing that, yet it's considered iconic now. You know, yep, absolutely. Where would we be if these artists were so playing it safe? Right, right. Well, there's another little like montage scene in in Bohemian Rhapsody where it's, they're recording their first record, I think, even before they got discovered, and they're doing all sorts of gimmickry. Do you remember that scene? Yeah. You know, they they got coins rolling around and they're hitting yep. buckets. And you know, according to the movie, that's right when the guy from EMI walked into the studio and says, "Who are these guys? These guys are crazy, <laughs> and I want to sign them." <laughs> Right, so right, right. Yep, you're right. It's a good observation. You know what else is really, really stupid, but uh, we've rolled with it is the uh, lightning round sound effect. Well, let's hit it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over six hundred dollars each week. You can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
I'm going to go let you go first in this lightning round. Mine has nothing to do with the uh, Tris and Bowden episode that we're recording and cutting into two parts, but I'm going to do something a little different with the lightning round this time. And so All right. I want you to go first because mine naturally segues right into buried treasures. So what do you got? Okay. Then I'm going to start with one that I've been holding for a while. It's not related at all to Tris, but I've been holding onto this one for the float your boat segment because uh, I find this song to be confusing, I guess, as to how it relates to Yacht Rock, but I see it posted every now and again. Your thoughts on Alan Parsons' project, Eye in the Sky. I am My personal thoughts? Yeah, your personal thoughts. And you're not asking, I mean, just so I know, this is our podcast, so I should kind of know the rules, but you're not asking, should it be considered yachty? You're just, does it float my boat? Do I consider it yachty at all, right? Yeah, I will tell you that the uh, the guys that did the Yachtsky scale were quite... Um there's a lot of variation. There's a 42 score, there's a 51 score, there's a 54, and there's a 28. So, Ooh. Uh, Who hit him with the 28? That was uh, Dave, who I guess is not working with them anymore, from what I understand. So maybe that was why. I don't know. Yeah. He got <laughs> you fired, right? in the sky. What are you doing? Come on. Right. Uh, I'm with whoever went 44. 42. I don't yeah. think it... 42. I don't think it quite makes the boat. Um, I do have it in my playlist, but again, my playlist isn't strict Yacht Rock. So I would say, no, not really, but I do like the tune enough that I want to hear it. And uh, it's got part of the unsanctioned Yacht Rock quality. By unsanctioned, I mean the people who just think of light rock as the nostalgia factor. And so they might put it on the boat for that reason. It's got that, which I don't think is any sort of official quality for Yacht Rock. I'm nostalgic about hearing Beach Boys vegetables, but I don't think that is uh, Yacht Rock either. <laughs> That's so, true. Um, true. Eye in the Sky to me, whoever, uh, when Dave said 28, I think he may have even given it too high of a score. So Whoa. Yeah, I'm more of a 22 sort of guy, but uh, I, don't, I don't see that one how it relates whatsoever other than Alan Parsons' amazing drum sound recording. I don't think there's anything else in it, but... No. Anyway. Yeah, I think you're probably right. There's none of the R&B type jazzy. That's for sure. All right. Are you ready for a new lightning round feature? Ooh, hot. This is the lightning round within the lightning round. Mm. So I need you to hit the lightning round sound effect twice. Whoa, that's overwhelming, isn't it? So here we go. The backstory to this is you and I were recording an episode of Catch of the Day, which if people aren't familiar with Catch of the Day, that's like a radio style show that we do. It's a one hour program where each time we record an episode, we pick a particular theme and we include songs related to that theme. We talk through what the theme means. And recently we did something called Novelty Yacht. Remember that? (laughs) Yes, I do. (laughs) It was kind of goofy songs. Um and a song came up, and by the way, if anyone out there who has a uh, a radio station or format that might want to syndicate that, that is syndicated, we're on three radio stations now. We're on Yacht Rock Miami, we're on Pacific Coast FM, and we are on Yacht Rock and Radio and looking for more homes. Uh, so contact us if that's something that you want to pick up. Anyways, back to the topic. One of the songs 
It's very appropriate because it's got a big, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So what song am I, first of all, what artist, no, I don't want you to guess okay. because that might ruin the lightning round within the lightning it round. It will. So you asked me while we're recording, you're like, does Paul Davis float your boat? Right. Typically, generally. And uh, I, of course, said yes. I'm not so sure that that's a, a correct answer. Well, I mean, yes. That should float my boat. But I'm going to do a lightning round. I'm going to go through the Paul Davis songs I have in my playlist. Okay. And give me a quick yes or no. Yes or no okay. on each of them. All right. Uh, would you like to start the clock? Yes. This aforementioned yeah song, 65 Love Affair. No. Cool Night. Yes. I Go Crazy. Yes. Soft yes. Soft. Well, it is a soft song. Yeah. And that leads us to the final, which is going to be my submission to Buried Treasure. I think it's his yachtiest tune. Do you believe in love? Yes. If you believe in love, oh, you got to believe in love. You can have faith in me, girl. Got to believe in Very yachty. Yes, 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 Probably yes. the yachtiest of all, I would think. There's others in my list, but I think that was the, yeah. my lightning round. Yeah, there's probably the some others. Round. Very good, very good. Clever. Cool. I love Paul Davis. I didn't realize how much I loved yeah. Paul Davis until I got into this mess with you. Mm-hmm. All right. Back to you for a buried treasure, sir. Well, I have to send out uh, props to the rubdown for this one. This is fresh off the rubdown. So, uh, you're cheating because that just came out today. I know what you're I know do. that, but I think <laughs> it, it, this song was uh, is so, I guess, you know, it, it came from so buried to me that I think it deserves a little extra push. So, um the uh, the rubdown show uh, looks at songs that have not yet been rated, and they they score them as uh, sort of the the minor league uh, scoring uh, panel. The minor leagues of smooth, as I think, is that's refer what they to say. It. Yeah, and they came up with this song. Uh, I'm just going to hit it. This is a guy named John Valenti from 1980. A song called Stephanie. John apparently is from Chicago, I noticed. I looked up. Um, he does have some... The band music. Chicago? No, the city. Oh, Chicago. that would have fit perfect. Oh, I know. <laughs> uh, but he did have some Yachty guys. So he did apparently go to uh, California to record it. It was done at Studio Sound in North Hollywood. Uh, the album credits, I don't have a song by song. I wasn't able to find that yet. But the album does have Vinnie Caliuta on it, Ed Green, Chuck Finley. Um, those are mostly the names I recognize. But it's not as though this was done completely outside the bubble of our yacht rock era. So I think that they did a great job of finding that one. And I think it uh, deserves to be yep. known. I jammed it. Unburied as you yes. said. I was just jammed it right before we got on too. It's a good tune. It, it's amazing. We're still finding stuff from the past. You know, it's one thing to be finding new stuff, but to find, keep finding old stuff. That's just amazing. That's what's so cool. It, yeah. Not stuff that I forgot. I forgot, but stuff I had no idea. I've never heard well, any of this, you know, so Can, there we go. Uh, that, maybe I steal a base here and go back to me for off the map because I'll give you another example. Okay, do it. Um, this is only off the map because I don't know how anyone would officially um, rate this. And this is, I'm going to go to some viewer mail. Are you ready? Viewer mail. Uh, we 
got written to us by a, a second time viewer mailer, Richard Nickel, all the way from Australia. Um, actually, all the way from New Zealand. I beg your pardon. That comes back. Yeah, you might get in trouble. <laughs> I know. And he'll even reference this. I'm just going to read this to you, which will get to my submission for Off the Map. So, hello there, Out of the Main crew. Loved the Yatsky-themed episode. That was cool. As your Kiwi fan here, I've been looking for a New Zealand yacht, but it's hard to find. When I do, I'll share it with you guys. It'd be great to give it a cool genre name, just like Japanese yacht is city pop, waka pop. <laughs> I guess a waka is a boat in uh, that's the in the Maori language. Uh, okay. Anyway, is kanga yacht? <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, ooh, what if Bob from Tasmania? They're like devil yacht. No. All right. I digress. Let's get back on tra- topic. Anyway, as much as I hate to admit that Australia could have beaten New Zealand in anything, recently I picked up for $1 an album by an Australian singer, Renee Geyer, I think. It's G-E-Y-E-R. She was a bit of a bluesy singer back in the 70s and 80s, but got a deal to record an album in the States in 1977. Ding, ding. That's right in the heart of it. It was called Moving Along. It's definitely a tip of the hat to the yacht sound and has Ray Parker on guitar. Ooh. So it's got personnel. I'm thinking it's yachty. Anyway, that's me saying. He's the only personnel of note. The pick of the tracks for me is Be There in the Morning. So, Richard sums up. He says it's a smooth track. I'm not sure if it's yacht, but it's a great tune. So, anyways, uh, that's a great submission. And it, since we don't know exactly how any of us would roll, to me, it's a little disco-y, I think. Yep, I did hear some disco elements in that. Yep, but uh, it's definitely emblematic of the era, so I like that. Here's to prove that Richard is, in fact, a listener. He said, P.S., well, I know you hate PSs. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. you referenced that in one of the episodes. Mm-hmm. But, uh, nice. He did give me permission to read his name and uh, his country in the podcast. So thanks nice. a lot, Richard. Keep them coming. And everyone else as well. Well, get us out of here. What do you got in the final uh, lightning final round? Final off the map submission here is uh, from 1992. Sonically, it is outside of the, uh, obviously, time frame, it's outside of the era. But sonically, also, it's getting into a little more. Drum Machine 90 sound, of course, but from an arrangement perspective, the arrangement of the parts and the, is spot on. And this is a cool cover by Go West. Remember Go West? Oh, yeah. <clears throat> There's something that's Yachty? Or- Bobby Caldwell's What You Won't Do For Love. How do you like that? What a great cover. What a great yeah. find for Off the Bat. Mm-hmm. Uh, Why, thank you. I've got one that's almost as good, but i got to hold it for next time. But uh, yes. that's what we call a cliffhanger. Ooh. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of cliffhangers, 
we've broken this episode into two parts, which right. means we're going to take a week-long break, get back to Tris next week. We're going to actually dive into the Chicago years next. And uh, until then, what do you want to say there, Captain? Have you come up with any uh, other new ways of leaving a hanging cliff other than... Well, there's Cliff we, Richard, but... And um, then there, okay. Why? Do you have so, something? I just have a hoy. Ahoy.